I was the second youngest person in Pennsylvania's history to be sentenced to death. I was only a 21-year-old kid. Why can't you believe me that this is all a lie? I didn't take his gun. They said, oh, we don't care about that. You see, we're going to put you on death row for what you did. Where was the evidence? There was none. They destroyed the original DNA evidence from my autopsy case. I was 24 years old, man. On the run. On the run, on the FBI's most wanted list for a crime I didn't do. He fired a second shot. I went down, he thought he hit me. I couldn't just say, hey, it was a mistake and all that. They already fired shots at me and I get them thinking, maybe they wanted to kill me so I don't get a new trial. I decided enough was enough and I asked to dismiss my lawyers and be executed. How do you get through each day knowing that you're going to be executed and knowing that you're going to lose your life? Welcome to the Eventful Lives podcast. I'm your host Dodge and I'm the founder of Bournemouth Sevens, the world's largest sports and music festival. On this podcast I speak to fascinating people who have all lived eventful lives. If you haven't already, do us a favour, press the follow button and check us out at Dodge Woodall on Instagram, TikTok and YouTube, where we've now had over 80 million views. Nick Yaris was sentenced to death and spent 23 years on death row before DNA testing proved him innocent. He has since become an advocate for criminal justice and saving other people's lives. This episode is mind-blowing. This is the eventful life of Mr. Nick Yaris. Nick, welcome to the show, mate. Dodge, I can't believe I made it, brother. Yeah, mate. This I is know. Gonna... Thank you so much. It's my pleasure, mate. Thank you for coming down all this way. I really do appreciate it. Let's, um, let's roll all the way back, Nick. Where did you grow up and how did you end up spending 22 years on death row? So I grew up in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And unfortunately, I grew up at a time in America that was chaotic. 1968. Martin Luther King got assassinated. The whole country was going crazy because of the Vietnam War and all this stuff. And unfortunately for me as a seven-year-old boy at the time, I actually left school to have some kind of medical appointment. I can't remember, probably a dentist or something. And I had my school clothes on and my mother was real upset not to get those clothes dirty, you know what I mean? Because I was going to be allowed out to play. And those are the only memories I had of my childhood before this time. And I went out to play with my dog, Jocko, and I walked through the neighborhood. And my little love buddy, he was a little black poodle, he and I went down to the little wooded area behind my neighborhood, as we always did, looking for adventure. And as I got towards the area where I like to go and play with my dog, I saw an older boy there by about 12 years, and it was odd to look over at him and see this look on his face. Like, I've never seen an animal uh, do this, but human beings can do it. The look of prey, and I didn't know what any of it meant. Just later years, it take took me many years to think about it, but he saw me as a weak part of prey, and he lured me to him, and he was smoking a cigarette, and he made me take a puff of his cigarette, and when I did, I got instantly out of my head from the tobacco going through my brain, 
And I heard this, and I realized later on what that was. He hit me with a field stone in the front of my head and knocked me to the ground and began raping me. When I came to, he was straightening his clothes up, and he told me how I was going to go ahead and tell my family that I fell and a shopping cart landed on my head or he was going to kill my dog and my parents. This is a 12-year-old boy? No, 12 years older than 12 me. 12 years older than you. Jeez. So I was okay. seven. He was about 19, 19 or 20. Wow. My God. And he kept yelling at me that he wasn't gay. I didn't know what that meant. Mm. And he was really upset and angry at me, and I hadn't done anything. I didn't understand why he was upset. So I went home, and I told my mom that I fell... And it was the worst feeling, Dodge, because I let him win. I became tied to him by our very lie. And it just made me hate myself. And I was so young, I didn't understand a lot of this. I was just always afraid of him. Whenever I saw him in the neighborhood, he would try and single me out in the alleyway or something and reinforce the threats against me. I remember... I used to go in my dad's basement and punch myself in the legs because I was so tired of being afraid. I figured if I just hurt myself, I won't be afraid. It really drove me crazy to, to be bonded with this person like this. So I, I sought escape from it in any way that I could, and I started drinking. By the time I was 10 years old, I was drinking every weekend. By the time I was 14, I was doing every drug manageable. And by the time I was 17 year old, I was shooting methamphetamine into my veins. I was so mean and nasty, I hated myself. You know, there's only three photographs of me as a child. It's weird. I realized why that was. I was so aggressive and brusque and nasty no one had any time for me. Not even my own family. So you couldn't go to your mum and dad and open up? You had the fear of the guy who did that to you? No, I couldn't do any of that because I had already lied, didn't I? And he knew I lied for him, so he, he just preyed upon that. It was a terrible feeling to see him drunk in the neighborhood and he would look my way and he would just go menacing on me. And I, I was only a, a little short kid at first, you know. And it, the craziest thing is, when I was 16 years old, I went from this little five foot four little boy to six foot two in like a year and a half. And I was over 200 pounds. And the guy that attacked me was only five foot nine, 160 pounds. But I didn't equate all of this because he was such a terrible figure. I mean, I seen him beat up grown-ups and everything as a child, so he was like bigger than life. So I remember I caught him in the woods like he caught me. And as I, I realized it was my moment to get back, you know? I thought about killing him so often, you know. And then 
As he came towards me, he realized that he was in a situation where he could no longer threaten or intimidate me. In fact, he thought it was the day I was going to get him back. So as he came towards me, he started getting all pathetic and like, you have to understand, Nick, I got problems. I remember his hands going like that. I'm so sorry I did what I did, but I got problems too. And I'm still, and he kept saying it, but I'm not gay. Fuck, I couldn't understand what he was saying, really. And I just knew that the more he acted this way, the more disgusting I became to the point I didn't even beat him up. I just let him go, man. Why? Because I realized I became him. I was a nasty piece of shit like he was. I was so disgusted with myself, I literally took a bunch of drugs, jumped in a stolen car and drove to Florida, and I went and destroyed a hotel room in Miami Beach and was put into a mental hospital from breaking down. Why are you here? I hated myself so much because of the realization he made me be like him. Mm. How old were you when you got put away in the mental... 19. 19. And what was, your, what was your world like from 15, 16, 17, 18, 19? Was it just a concoction of drugs? Constantly violent? Was it violence? What was it? Violent. I got thrown out of the Philadelphia school system for stabbing a teacher with a pencil. Yeah. But I took the pencil out of myself to stab the kid back to stab me, and he put his hands up in the way, and that's why it happened. But still on my record. So I was ultra violent, and I got put into the juvenile system where I had to learn how to fight. So. And what's the juvenile system like out in America? Give an example. They call it junior gladiator school. So it's worse than adult prison because no one has any respect. They're two kids. Yeah. I mean, they're just kids, you know what I mean? So. Was there abuse going on in, in there? Yeah, a lot of it was physical abuse from the staff and beatings and stuff. They would make you stand on a stack of books, and if you came down off the books, they'd whip you. So a lot of it was mental torture. What year, roughly, are we talking here where you're in? 1978. 78. 79. And how long were you in there for? A year. Eight months, actually, yeah. I got trained by the Joe Frazier gym's boxing instructors to be a very clever, good boxer. Hell, I... I became a better fighter when I left juvenile than when I entered because every day you had to fight some kid. So you're saying you're in the juvenile centre here. What about your mum and dad? Where were they at the time? My mum and dad worked and they were trying to take care of six kids at once. So they had their hands full. And I tell you, at the time of all this happening, there was so much going on in America, it was easy to be overlooked, you know what I mean? Mm. I was just a kid in a city that was full of violence and drugs and all the crazy things that are going on. So it was easy for me to slip through the cracks. Plus, I was holding a dirty secret about myself and hating on myself. I didn't tell anybody what happened to me until I was 24 years old. Mm. Who did you tell? I finally told my mom and dad. They came to visit me. While I was in prison, I finally told my mom and dad what happened. And my mother said, oh, thank God. We thought we were bad parents. Isn't that sad? That is sad. My mother blamed herself for all the things I did wrong, man. Mm -hmm. She said, Nikki, I'm so relieved. We thought we were bad parents. I was like, oh, 
oh my god because of me lying for my attacker my parents knew something was wrong with me but they couldn't figure it out they thought they had failed me as parents man my mom internalized about this for years so Please, if anyone's hurt you out there, do me a favor and tell your parents because they're going to start making themselves feel horrible. They're going to think that they're not good people and that they, they let you ruin yourself when you're carrying a secret. Mm. So you had 17 years of carrying a secret around before you opened up to anyone. And that's yeah. 17 years of you getting violent and using more drugs to suppress the feeling. What made you, first of all, how did you get into prison? And what age were you? So at the age of 19, I went back to Philadelphia after I was in a mental institution, and I got diagnosed with aphasia. That's what my brain injury was at that time. What's aphasia? Aphasia could be recognized by a person who has a stutter. Their brain isn't functioning slow enough for their voice to catch up. They're going too fast. Or they, in times of stress, they'll stutter. That's mild forms of aphasia. Mine was so bad, I would actually lose sight in my left eye and become very aggressive. Mm. I, couldn't under, I couldn't have patience for you to speak to me. I had to become violent and dominant. And I couldn't have no, I had to have instant gratification, instant gratification. Yeah. Crazy. What did you get banged up for? Okay, so at the age of 20, I was back in my parents' house in Philadelphia. And I was sober. And I was happy, and I had a job and a girlfriend named Terry. And then I had a little small bullshit argument with Terry, and we broke up, and I started using again. And I went out and stole a car, got chased by the Philadelphia police, took a hell of a beating from them, went back home, and I sat in my room for weeks, seething about the beating I had gotten. But I started getting high again. And on December 20th, 1981, I stole a car, went out to the city of Chester, Pennsylvania, and I got pulled over for a traffic violation. When I got pulled over, this time I didn't run. This time I panicked inside the car because my aphasia was kicking in. And the officer came up and he ripped the door open, pulled me out, put his forearm against my throat and started pushing me back, choking me. I knocked his arm away. He pulled out his nightstick. I grabbed it off him like it was nothing. That's when he got really furious and he grabbed his gun. I reached out with both hands and grabbed his gun and the gun went off. That just changed everything. He put the gun under my neck, put me in the car, got into the car and he started composing himself. Then he yelled out, shots fired, shots fired. Help, help, I'm under attack. Like it was still going on. Mm. The ensuing officers got there and they believed him when he told them that I got out of my car, I ran back to his car without him having a chance, punched him in his face and took his gun off him and I was about to kill him when he heroically took the gun off me. Wow. So mm -hmm. they beat the hell out of me, took me to jail and charged me with attempted murder and kidnapping of a police officer. At the age of 20, my life was over. How long did you get for that? No, that was just the start of this story because I went through drug withdrawals and in my cell, the only thing I had in my cell was a newspaper about the murder and rape of a woman from the area that was a complete mystery to the police. 
I was looking at that headline and I couldn't stop reading it over and over and over. And I sat there and I thought, I'm sitting here facing life imprisonment because of a lie. What if I make up a lie and tell the police I know something about this crime and they let me out and then I could just run? And that, that's what was going through your head to do that. That's to make I, up a lie. To get out of to a get lie. Out. Jeez. At first, I didn't even think about doing it, but I had the story in my head and head and head. And this officer came by and he looked at me on my bed and he was like, damn, what's wrong with you? And I said, officer, can you help me? He said, no, I can't help you. What do you want? I said, well, I might know something about a big case in the area. Do you think that they would let me out of jail if I told them? He said, what are you talking about? And like this, it just came out. Mm. And that was it. He ran down the block and got the rest of them. They take me out to the warden's office and call the police. The police listened to my story. I told them that a man, they didn't know this, that had robbed me and put me in his back of his pickup truck and rolled me up in a rug and was going to murder me, had confessed to me about this murder, and that I could help the police solve the crime based on the fact that I thought he died of a drug overdose and they wouldn't find him. I'm that stupid, Dodge, mm. that I actually didn't mm -mm. think that they were going to find all this out. <laughs> At first, they took me to the warden's office, gave me a can of Coca-Cola, patted me on the back. They made a phone call in front of me and spoke to my arresting officer. He agreed to reduce my charges to resisting arrest, and I would be taken to Philadelphia for the stolen car, but I would be released. Right in front of me, everything's changing, so... I thought it would work, you mm. know. They put me back in my cell. And they came back three days later. They said, you're not going home. We know now why you came to us. You killed that woman and you're trying to tell the truth about it, aren't you, Nick? I was like, what? They said, yeah. We talked to your girlfriend. We found out you were all emotional when she broke up with you. And we know you wanted to come here and tell us the truth. That's why you picked out a friend of yours you thought was dead, because you knew we'd find out he was dead. And we know what this is really about. You're a murderer, and you want to tell the truth, don't you? I was like, no. Look, you spoke to the officer that arrested me. He told you the truth. Why can't you believe me that this is all a lie? I didn't take his gun. They said, oh, we don't care about that. You see, we're going to put you on death row for what you did. I was like, what? They didn't want to hear nothing, man. So they couldn't make me confess. They put a prisoner in the cell next to me that burglarized the prosecutor's home for one night. And he, and he said I confessed to him. Bloody hell. So. Well, you couldn't write this. In the age of 20, within three months of my arrest, I was sitting there charged with attempted murder, kidnapping of a police officer, and the rape and murder of a woman I never met in my life. Because you made it up. Because I made up a lie. Because you wanted to make it up to try to get yourself out of it, to get on the run. Bloody hell. So, the guards tried to stop a lot of the attacks, but one of the cruelest things that the police did to me was they brought me back from a, a long day of interviewing me and trying to make me confess. Then they gave me a hug in front of these pagan motorcycle gang members 
and told me, thanks for the information, we're going to go kick some doors in, as if I was a police informant. <laughs> they knew by putting the pressure on me that I would either come back to them and mm. ask for help or tell on myself. The very next day, a guy threw a cup of bleach with urine in it in my face and tried to blind me. Another one tried to put my eye out with a wooden sharpened broomstick. And I had to stand there for hours and hours with my mattress held up to my door to stop them from throwing feces and urine on me. Then when they let me out for the shower, I was just hurting anybody who was on the tier. I don't care if you did anything to me or not. That went on for a whole week and then I hung myself and the guard caught me and he brought me down by cutting the noose and he told me I wasn't allowed to cheat the state of Pennsylvania out of my punishment. So my mom came to visit me and she was really upset. And she said, I don't know what's going on, Nikki, but I need you to do me a favor. No matter what these people do to you, don't kill yourself and come home to me. So I went through it. I went back to the block. I fought whoever I had to fight. And I stood up for myself. When I went to trial for the original charges against Officer Benjamin Wright, I was found not guilty of all charges after only 20 minutes of deliberation because he was lying so obviously. The prosecutor went mental. He took the file from the, his hands and threw it against the wall, turned around and said, motherfucker, you'll never leave this county alive, his exact words. I was like, wow. He then took over the murder prosecution where he had no involvement prior to this, and he decided to seek the death penalty against me. They weren't going to give me a fair trial after that. How does the death penalty work? The death penalty works in two ways. If you can get 12 people that are in favor of the death penalty, they're more likely to give you a conviction. So, for example... If you've killed someone, you've got they've got the opportunity to give you a death penalty. Yeah. To anyone in, in America. No, not across America, only in thirteen states. So a lot of the other states have gone away with the death penalty, but a lot of the former slave states like Mississippi, Alabama, Florida, they still use the death penalty. Oklahoma, stuff like that. But Pennsylvania was using it then too. So I was the second youngest person in Pennsylvania's history to be sentenced to death. I was only a 21-year-old kid. So you'd, be, so you'd been in Nick for a year, and then they put the death penalty on you? Well, it went a little bit deep. Okay. Okay. I get found not guilty of all the original charges, right? That's with the copper. And then yep. they put me in trial in June of 1982, and the judge began his remarks to the jury saying... Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, thank you for your service. I know that this weekend is the 4th of July holiday, and I know that every single one of you have a huge worry that you won't be able to go home and celebrate the holiday, but I promise you this trial will be over before then and you can all go home. That was his opening yeah. remarks to the jury. Yeah. So I was given a three-day trial. He told me up front I was given a three-day trial. There was no evidence, no murder weapon, no motive ever established other than this made-up one that I was upset for making, uh, losing my 20-year-old girlfriend. 
So they used the photographs of the victim during her husband's testimony of her being in a portrait style. And then they showed a picture of her on the gurney in the autopsy room with the stick stab wound. Then they showed a picture of the woman's body found in the snow by two children. And you could see their footprints running away from the victim like it was two angel wings. They showed that image to the jury. The jury stopped looking at me and then they immediately found me guilty. And when they did, the courthouse was struck by a bolt of lightning. It knocked the power out and everything. The sheriffs were so believing that I had something to do with this, they came over with their guns drawn and ripped me out of the defendant's chair and got me out of the room, put me upstairs in this big, big, big holding cell all by myself. And I heard God's words say to me, look them in the eye. I didn't know what any of that meant. I was just a kid. So when I went back down in the courtroom to face my punishment, Sure enough, the judge was reading my sentence and stuff, but he wouldn't look at me. So I said, hey, excuse me. You're about to sentence me to die. Don't you think you should have the right to look me in the eye? And he couldn't bring his head up. Finally, he lifted his head and said, are you finished? And I said, yes, sir. No, sir, actually. You can go to hell. So all it said in the newspaper was defiant killer says go to hell to judge. But I knew when that courthouse was struck by a bolt of lightning, I wasn't going to die then. In fact, the crazy thing is, every member of the jury that found me guilty and sentenced me to die has already passed away. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah, yeah. So I was 21 years old. They sent me to death row. On my first day there, they beat me after dragging me off a bus, and they threw me in my cell. And because there was no death row at that time, I was in a punishment unit in a prison where the average rate of survival was only five years. They beat me and threw me in a cell, and for the next two years, I wasn't allowed to speak in my own cell. You weren't allowed to speak to yourself or to anyone. And if you did? Then you got a beating, and the nurse ran in while four men held you down. She's wearing a flak vest and a riot helmet, and she has a needle full of Thorazine in a syringe. She stabs you in the butt with it, and you're gone. And if you violate that again, then they took you and they put you behind B block in a glass brick cell, and they turn the lights on, and they make you stand up every 15 minutes until your brain goes into a whiteout. It's just torture. It's crazy how I was so angry at first. All I could do was beat my head on a wall. I kept beating my head, beating my head, beating my head on a wall because I figured as long as I could feel pain and be angry, I could, I could endure this. So this one officer took pity on me when they took me to the triage. And on the way back, he let me go in the cell of a man who jumped off the tier and killed himself and get some books out of a cell. And those five books that he gave me changed my whole life. What was the difference between the prison and then the prison that you've just been put into now? 
the one back then versus mm. the one now. Mm. 30 years of penology. There's so many different things. There's even drug treatment for junkies that are coming off the street. There was nothing back then. They used to euphemistically called it intensive cell therapy. The way that you're charged was so different too. Like I was charged with the rape and murder of a woman and it was open-ended. I could have gotten a life sentence or the death penalty, but the choice was the prosecutors, not the court. Mm. Uh, what was your lawyer saying? I hired a man for $1,500, which was my childhood inheritance from my grandfather's will that was going to be paid to me on my 21st birthday. And I gave this lawyer, Sam Stratton, all $1,500 of it so that he could represent me on both trials. And he had me found not guilty, like I said, of the first one, but he was no match for what was being done to me in the second trial. Do you know the worst thing was? After I get found guilty, they send me down into the courthouse underneath it, into these cells. My lawyer walked up to me and burst out crying, and I was holding a man in his 30s who was sobbing in my arms, comforting him, and I'd just been sentenced to die. What's that feeling like when you've just been sentenced to die? I was so angry because no one could look me in the face. I didn't care what they said that they were going to do to me or that they were going to put me to death. I knew my, my parents were standing behind me crying. And my sister cried out in horror when I was the verdict of rape was read out because she knew what sexual predators had done to them in prison. I knew that it was hard things for them. But I kept looking around the room waiting for that first person to have the guts to look me in the eye. What was your defense? Where were you that night or that time when that went and happened? The murder happened at 4.05 p.m. The abduction began at 4.05 p.m. Her wristwatch was broken and found, but the time stopped at 4.05 p.m. I was in Philadelphia paying my mother's phone bill in a bank at 3.05 p.m., ironically, and then I got on a trolley car and I went back to the neighborhood I lived and I was at home and in the store across from my parents' house between 4.30 and 5 o'clock. So the prosecutor said it was possible for me to have committed the murder, driven back and then been at my parents' house having dinner at 4.45. Not possible. Mm. How, far, they said, how far was the incident? 26 miles away. To, that, to, okay. In rush hour traffic during the only night that week, it rained and snowed. And this is actually what saved me is that the store owner remembered I came into her store that week with no coat on in the rain. And that was the only night it rained and snowed. So she came in and told the court that I was in her shop. She pointedly knew this at 440. I was at the bank at 3.05. I was home having dinner when I had an argument with my sister about money. And I got thrown out of dinner. I went across the street. I went into the store to get warm and to get something. 
and the store owner backed up my mother's story and everyone else. But the prosecutor knew they had a, a golden ticket. Mm. Two little boys found the victim, and they had bloody photographs, and they were going to make those people hate me, and they did a good job of it. What made you want to make up a bullshit story when you saw that newspaper in the prison? Because everything that had me in jail was a bullshit lie. I didn't take that officer's gun. I didn't attack him and try to murder him. He was lying on me, so I was going to lie to get out of it. That's the craziest thought. But when you're facing life imprisonment at the age of 20, it actually makes sense. Yeah. What were the words that the judge said. Can you remember the words he said to you about the death penalty? He sentenced me first to death. He said, I hereby order that you are taken to the State Correctional Institute at Rockview Prison in the state of Pennsylvania upon completion of your appeals to be executed and your body will be subjected to 2,300 volts of electricity until you're put to death. I am additionally adding 30 to 60 years on top of your sentence so that even if your sentence is turned over to a life sentence, you will have a consecutive 30 to 60 years on top of that life sentence so that I never have to worry about you getting out of prison again. So help you God. My God. So, I'm in a prison. I'm not allowed to speak. And I meet my first attorney who comes to the prison to tell me that as a former military officer, he supported the death penalty and he was okay with me being put to death. He further read the trial transcripts and he was well aware I was guilty. There's no point in wasting your time trying to convince me of this bullshit, you're innocent. But he was going to take pity on me and file my appeal nonetheless, he said. Where was the evidence? There was none. The killer had B-positive blood, and the only thing that they had in the early 80s was serology, blood grouping. Mm. Unfortunately, I have B-positive blood just like the killer. Had you ever been close to hurting anyone before this incident? Say again? Have you ever been close to hurting anyone before you got put in prison? Oh, hell yeah. So I lived in the streets of Philadelphia where gang warfare was the norm. Mm. So I've beaten people senseless and I've been beaten senseless for my skin color or other reasons. So that's how it went. I didn't mind fisticuffs with another teenager, but I never hurt the women, you yeah. know what I mean? What concoction of drugs were you taking from the age of 15 up to 20? I used to, I was hooked on tequila at one point. I used to get a fifth of tequila, it's called Two Fingers Tequila that had a scorpion in it. And I would delight in the fact that I would get to that scorpion as fast as I could, just sucking on the bottle. I used to fill it up with grenadine and orange juice and make um, tequila sunrise and then walk around all day drinking while I was high as out of my mind on methamphetamine. So 
I would shoot meth, snort meth, drink, and then I would take barbiturates to sleep. And what's meth? Methamphetamine is Speed. one of the most powerful amphetamines you can get your hands on. Okay. And what feeling did that give you? Superpowers. Yeah. Mixed with a load of tequila. Yeah. Jesus. So, yeah, and then when <laughs> I would take pills, I would go on a rampage. What kind of pills? Barbiturates, two and all, second all, Quaalude, Valium, oh man, I, uh, Delauda. I used to burglarize drugstores just to get my drugs. So I was bad. I remember at one point I stole all these drugs from a burglary of a drugstore in New Jersey and I had like 2,000 quaaludes, like 5,000 barbiturates. And I used to get robbed regularly by the Five Squad narcotics unit in Philadelphia. The rule was if they caught you in your car and you had money, they just took your money. Money and drugs, get an ass whooping. They're going to take the money and drugs off you, you go on your way. Get caught with drugs, you go to jail. But never for drugs, you get arrested for... Uh, resisting arrest or uh, impeding the uh, work of an officer. And then they would do it on a Friday night and make you spend all weekend in the roundhouse mm. jail. Were you a, how many years were you a proper nuisance to the old Bill in Philadelphia? Ever since I was 14. So you were, you were clocked the whole time? They knew me. Okay. Yeah. If you went through Southwest Philly down to 74th Street, Nikki Yaris was the name. If something happened, the first person they came to was Nikki Yaris. Yeah. So I had a bad reputation. They used to call me the psycho. I beat a, a couple of guys up with a base, uh, aluminum baseball bat. So that was my gang nickname, Psycho. Why did you batter him with a bat? Because a van load of kids jumped out and beat me up. And I ran home and grabbed the baseball bat and went back after him. But they had already left, and I ended up attacking three kids that didn't even have anything to do with the attack. Mm. How old were you? 16. And where was your old man and your mum at this time, when all this is going on? Yeah, they were trying to handle the, the fact that they had six kids, and every one of us were on drugs or drinking. My sisters were alcoholic drug addicts. My brothers were both alcoholic drug addicts like me. So everybody in the family was doing drugs, basically, except for my mom. When you had the death sentence called upon you, what's the score in America? Do they say you're on death row and you're going to be executed in a week, a year, 10 years? How does it work? At the time... Like I said, I was so young and I was put on death row before there was officially a death row. I was put into a punishment housing. And then every month they used to bring me out to a program review committee and they would ask me to admit that I killed this woman, to tell them what to do with my body and to give up my appeals. At first when I would go in there, as such a young kid, I would argue with them that I didn't do it. Don't make me tell you what to do with my body. I was, it was more of picking on me than anything, you know? And I didn't like how they just kept tormenting me. So it would go like this. 
Dear Mr. Yaris, welcome to, say, March 1982 Program Review Committee number seven or whatever it was. Today, we ask you once more, are you guilty of raping and killing Mrs. Craig? No. Are you guilty of the crimes related to killing Mrs. Craig? No. Do you wish to tell us now what to do with your body when we execute you? No. Why do you resist acknowledging your guilt? You've been found guilty. Why are you resisting this? I'm not resisting anything. I didn't do it. Stop telling us that. You're not allowed to say those words. Where do you want us to take your body when we execute you? I don't care. I didn't do it. Stop telling us you did that. Then they would just yank me out of there. Or they would humiliate me. Mr. Yaris, we know that you had a terrible childhood. Why don't you talk to us about why you hated your mother and father so much that you were an animal as a child? I wasn't an animal. I was just angry. Why did you break your family's heart? Why don't you love your mother enough to be a good person? Why do you have to be a murdering scum? So, after a while, I ignored them. Whatever they said to me, I'd start telling them about football or baseball or whatever. So they thought I'd think I was cracked and I was mental. So, my first lawyer filed my appeal, and when he did, I got a new trial order. The state Supreme Court knew that they were wrong what they did to me and sent my case back. And unfortunately for me, that's what led to me escaping from death row. So I was on my way. I was so anxious and happy. I could prove that I didn't do this stuff I'm thinking. So on February 15, 1985, three and a half years after I landed, going down to court, and after five hours driving in this car, they stopped to let me use the toilet. I get out of the car, and my prison eyeglasses fog up because I was in the warm car into the sub-zero temperatures. Then they took me into the cubicle and let me pee. While I'm standing there urinating, my eyeglasses fogged up even worse because of my breathing. I turned around, I walked out of the room, and as I was heading back to the patrol car, the officer holding the door for me went back inside to take a piss himself and left me on my own. So I'm trotting at the officer, who's now had his back to me, smoking a cigarette, turns around and only sees a death row prisoner running at him, pulled out his gun and tried to shoot me in the face. Like no stop, warning, shouting, just pulled the gun and blasted. Because in his mind, his testimony later on at trial would be, I saw Nick Yaris running at me in the dark. I thought he overpowered my partner. I wasn't giving him a chance to take me out. I'm 68 years old. I can't fight. So he tried to blow my head off. I turned around and I started running. He fired the second shot. I went down. He thought he hit me. I jumped up and I started running through this plate glass window for a restaurant when he was going to have to shoot through the glass to get me. Then I turned Went around the building, I ran 100 yards straight, another 100 yards to the right, and another 100 yards back, 
and I dove into the ground about 75 yards behind their patrol car and laid there. And I started vomiting and getting all upset because I couldn't understand what was happening with the shock going through my body. And I knew I couldn't just stand up. I couldn't just say, hey, it was a mistake and all that. They already fired shots at me and I get in thinking, maybe they wanted to kill me so I don't get a new trial. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So I hid behind a police station for two hours. Then when I came out of there, a helicopter was called in to chase me. For the next five hours, I went through hell being chased by this guy with this helicopter. And the only reason he couldn't catch me is it was so cold that the forward-looking infrared camera wasn't working. All he had was a million candlewatt power light. And he was down on me, man, like with the blades. And it was kicking up snow around me as he chased me. And then at one point, I was up against a 10-foot fence running right at it. I don't know if I'm going to scale it or not, but I fell right in front of the fence and slalomed down a big hill and got away. And he kept going back looking for me and going back and looking for me. I ended up stealing a 1965 Mustang from the train station and I drove to New York and got out of there. I was 24 years old, man. On the run. On the run, on the FBI's most wanted list for a crime I didn't do. My God. How long were you on the run for? 25 days. The first ones were hard. I came out of my flop house room in New York City. It's called the Bowery District. And I saw all these televisions at Macy's store with my mom on it. And I knew they were hunting me hard. They were going to gun me down. I knew that. So I kept walking around all that day wondering, what can I do? How can I get away from all this? And I saw this business. It was a, a gay hair salon. I don't even know why I did this, but I burst in the room and pretended that my boyfriend had been beating on me and could they help me? And they took over. These two lovely gay men sat me down in a chair and for the next three hours, permed my hair, dyed it black, put makeup all over my cuts and scratches, and then had a friend of hers, an optometrist, make a brand new pair of eyeglasses for me. I walked out of their shop unrecognizable to the police. Crazy. <laughs> I don't even know where it came from, God. <laughs> I wrote it. Oh, just hold me on that. I'd love to have seen that. I'd love to have seen that. Dude, I was just like, I was standing there looking at them, and they were very affectionate and everything towards each other. And I thought, I know what to do. And I just went running into the door. I was like, you gotta help me, you gotta yeah, help me. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. my boyfriend, look what he did to me. Oh my God, oh my God, he's gonna kill me. And they didn't even think, they were like, oh my God, come here darling, come here. And they sat me down in the chair and they're like, don't worry, worry he'll okay. never recognize yeah. you. I was like, <laughs> result. <laughs> yeah. My God, so what was the feeling like being on the run? Oh Obviously God. it was very stressful. Oh. What was your movements for those next 25 days? So I stole a men's fur coat out of a very posh hotel restaurant by tricking the, co uh, the coat check girl into giving it to me by saying, my dad and I were leaving. Could you give me his coat real quick? He's not feeling really well. Tricked her into giving me a coat and the dude had a wallet in it. So I looked on his wallet. He was from Orlando, Florida. 
I used his credit cards to go buy a ticket. I went to his house and I stole from his house. Well, he's in New York. Mm. So back then, if you canceled your credit cards, it would take weeks. Yeah. So I knew he wouldn't be in Orlando. So I went to Orlando. And How I went, far is that then? Pennsylvania or Orlando? I got on an airplane. You didn't need ID back then. Really? I used his credit cards at the airport to buy a ticket in his name and got on the plane in his name and flew from New York City to Orlando to go rob his house. So I stole a bunch of silver servers and stuff like that and some antique uh, cavalry pistols. I took them to the most dingy, broke-down pawn shop in Orlando area, and sure enough, my man was a criminal. And he sold me a nine millimeter pistol, but wouldn't give me any bullets. And then he uh, set up a friend of his to be robbed. A drug dealer named Anthony Manillo was selling drugs in the area and had ripped off his brother and his father. And he had all this gold cougar and coins at his place, the guy told me. And if I could get into his house, I could have 100000 dollars worth of gold plus whatever else I got from him then he told me where to find the guy and everything so I'm out there like I'm some kind of stupid Miami Vice character Mm. thinking that I could get away with this and I end up robbing that guy he gets out of the car gets away from me calls the police I drive off I don't get anything from him and I end up sitting in front of a Navy, Army Navy shore in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, thinking about how to kill myself. So I was actually going to buy a big rubber raft, and I was going to go out into the ocean and have one last party of all my favorite foods. Then I was going to shoot myself in the head with the gun after cutting my wrist and getting the sharks to come around so that I would never be seen in handcuffs again. And the more I thought about that, I thought, I was just leaving it up to my family to pay for my crime. All my stupid acts, whatever I have done, my parents got to pay for this. Did you contact anyone on the run? Yeah, I called my father and I told him to turn me in. I said, Dad, I can't do this no more. You got to call the FBI and tell them where I'm at and come get me. And the only thing he said to me was, are you sure? I said, yes, sir. He hung the phone up, called the FBI and told them where I was. They came, they put me on death row next to Ted Bundy for eight months, gave me 35 more years. So when I left the state of Florida, I had 105 years plus the death penalty on top of me. I know. So I went on this mad crusade to educate myself. I read all of the world's religions. And when I finished that beautiful effort, a newspaper, not this time about a murder or me making up a lie, the newspaper was about a big important development called DNA based on Sir Alec Jeffries from the United Kingdom going around Leicestershire and collecting the blood samples of all the men between a certain age group and then proving that Colin Pitchfork had murdered a girl in the area. 
when I read this story in the newspaper about this forensic science convention coming to Philadelphia and how this new DNA could resolve cases that were based on serology, I started screaming, oh my God, oh my God, I got the key to my cell in my hands. I'm going home. That was February of 1988, six years after they sentenced me to death. It would take another 15 years. They destroyed all the evidence, Dodge. They tried to murder me year after year. Who tried to murder you? That the police department that had the evidence in their control decided they weren't going to have me get any fairness. They destroyed the original DNA evidence from my autopsy case and then they went on a deliberate mission to destroy whatever DNA that I found. What was your day-to-day like, Nick, inside a prison, knowing you're going to get the death penalty, knowing you are going to be executed? I used to get up in the morning and use a little blue washcloth to clean my cell because there were so many prisoners on the block. When you woke up in the morning, everything inside your cell is covered with dead skin cells. If you let it go three days in a row, you literally can wipe the surface with your finger and move a pile of it. Dead skin cells all over me, dead skin cells everywhere. So I would get up and I would wet my washcloth and I would clean my cell. And then I turned that into a force resistance exercise combined with Kundalini Yoga. And I became absolutely ripped from cleaning my cell every day. When I finished cleaning my cell, I started reading and educating myself. I had only one mission. I'm going to die in here, but I have two rules. Every day I'm going to clean myself, I'm going to bathe myself, and I'm going to learn how to speak for myself beautifully so that when they put me to death, the last words that I hear will be beautiful. Can you remember the words? Oh, I had a death speech beautifully prepared. What was your death speech? It was about being like a neutrino and how I was passing through their lives without their ability to appreciate what I was, just like the beautiful neutrinos that pass through this earth every day. I went on to follow that up with apologizing for how I had lost my way, missing out on who I could have been, and finally forgiving them for murdering me as beautifully and as politely as I could possibly do. I hated the way I spoke. It really bothered me when I was at trial. I realized I must have sounded so stupid. So my only thing was, I wanted to be able to speak beautifully in the hopes that when they took my life, I didn't embarrass myself. How many years did they say you're going to have to be in there before you got executed? Was there a number on that? No. 
It's as long as it takes the appeals, and because of my escape, I've ruined my appeals. I was sitting there after the escape, knowing that I wasn't going to get help from the appeal process, and I was miserable, but then I went and changed the whole script. I enrolled in university and began reading all of the world's religions. When I got to the end of reading all of the world's major religions, I found out about DNA testing. It was like God rewarded me for having enough respect to believe all of people's beliefs. And he gave me a chance for DNA. I didn't know that as I began my efforts, it would take so long. In fact, I had just met a woman who was falling in love with me. I felt so guilty because this girl was falling in love with me. I refused to tell her I was innocent at first. I didn't want to burden her with that feeling that she was falling in love with someone. So I lied to her. I wouldn't tell her that I was innocent. And it was so much even worse on me because the biggest embarrassment is to try and tell somebody you're on death row from you making up a story, not because you killed someone. It was horrifying. Like, if you think about it, I have to look someone in the face and say, I'm not a murderer, I'm just a liar who made up a story and put myself on death row from being that stupid. It was the worst feeling in the world, but she was determined to fall in love with me. So when I found out about DNA testing, I finally told her the truth, that I was innocent. How did you fall in love with someone in death row? She came to visit me as part of a prisoner um, rights group who was trying to get the prison stopped from torturing us. I was literally in the only prison in American history condemned by the United Nations for its active practices of torture. Eh? I mean, we had San Quentin, we had uh, Alcatraz. None of them ever got condemned by the United Nations for what Pennsylvania was doing to its prisoners. So... Over the next nine years, this woman would fiercely fight to prove my innocence with me. And then, after nine years of being in love with her and having her come see me, she walked in one day and said that she had to go because they had spilled all the evidence. There was no evidence left, so she just couldn't take it anymore. She said that she had nothing left but an empty life after her mother had passed away and she couldn't see herself just living like that anymore. So I went back to my cell and I wrote her this beautiful farewell letter and I thanked her for everything, for teaching me how to love myself, how to care about myself. I thanked her for giving me the ability to have a laugh, a great sense of humor, and I thanked her for teaching me how to speak to women. And I told her it was okay that they put me to death because she made me a beautiful person. And then, after she left, I did this remarkable thing. I reached out and started writing to pen pals all over the world. 
and I asked him to do me a favor because I knew about DNA. Would you please do me a favor and put my hair in the oceans around the world so I can circumnavigate the globe even though I'm on death row? And that's what I did. And then I started helping other men get off a of death row. I did their legal work for them, got their cases overturned, got them new trials. I couldn't help myself, so I wanted to be a good person finally. How many people were in death row in your prison? 245. Did you know all of those 245 in there? I was there so long that I was there when they landed. They were still shocked by what had happened to them before they got their mouth back, before they became aggressive again. I was there on their first day when they shit themselves and were scared to death of what was happening to them. I was there so long, Dodge, I watched them all come to death row. I knew them. And every one of them, after a while, would come to me for help. Yo, you're the guy that got Lonnie Baker off of death row. You're the guy that got Running Bear off of death row. You're the guy that helped so-and-so with his legal work. Everybody wanted to be my friend after a minute, but I was also enduring a crazy thing where the guards were making us fight in gladiator school. Horrible. I still think about the men that had no chance to beat me that I had to beat on. I slammed one guy to the ground so hard I broke his hip. That bothered me for many years, man, but I I promised my mother I was coming home, you understand? Mm. I don't care what they made me have to do. I was coming home to her, I told her. And then I got sick. I was diagnosed with hepatitis C. And I listened to a couple of the others that had the same affliction die around me. I got the disease when they broke my teeth after the escape. They beat me for four minutes and held me up on sticks and paraded me around. So... Hold on, hold on. They held you up on sticks? On a riot stick, they paraded me around and showed everybody what happens to you if you escape. To show Detached you. my retina in my left eye, shattered my face on the right side from kicking me with metal steel cap boots. Beat me so bad I've, I kept peeing blood in my urine for months. Like it was just how many hard. How many hours a day were you banged up for? 23 hours a day for 23 years or more. Yeah, man. Every day of my life for 23 years, I was in this cell. By yourself? 23 hours a day. And what did that cell look like? Horror show. Peeling paint. I was in a prison built in the 1800s. I wasn't lying about the average rate of survival on my block was only five years. A lot of guys killed themselves. I watched 11 people commit suicide while I was in prison. How did they do that? Hang themselves or throw themselves off a tier. Oh, that's usually the way it goes. The one guy, Peanut, really bothers me to this day. Peanut was a good person who was in jail for assaulting his father. 
His father was beaten on his mom regularly, and Peanut attacked his father, and his father pressed charges on him. Peanut deliberately served all 15 years of his sentence so that he didn't have to go home because he knew he was going to kill his father. He loved his mother so much that the day before they let him out, he hung himself. And he spoke to me the night before he killed himself. And he kept asking me, do you think I could make it, Nick? And I said, Peanut, you're a bright dude, man. You got this. I was building him up, you know? And at one point, he just said to me, but what about my mom? I said, your mom loves you, man. Of course she wants to see you happy. What are you talking about? He said, if I go home, my dad's going to be there. And I know he's beating on my mom right now. What do I do? I said, man, maybe you got to go to the popo. Maybe you got to break code and go to the police. Maybe you got to do the right thing. He said, yeah, maybe I got to do the right thing. And then I didn't hear from him no more. And I kept calling him. And then the guard came by about 5.30 in the morning, said we got a hanging. I was so fucking angry at him. I couldn't believe he was yelling that shit. Peanut wasn't no He was a beautiful human being. You bitch. I don't ever talk about Peanut because it really hurt me. I kept thinking the same as him. Could I ever get out of jail? Could I ever get out of this and be normal? That really bothered me. He shouldn't have killed himself. Did you sense that he would do something like that? I, I was shocked. I thought he was really going home the next day, and I was just comforting him, building him up, you know? Hell, I was bigging him up and telling him he needed to go out there and get some girl that knew how to cook, and I was telling him all this stuff. Like, find a girl just like your mom and ignore what's happening to her. But if you need to, go over and help her. Like, I really thought I was just talking to this guy, and here it was, he was trying to figure out a way to share the last moments of his life. In those 22 years you're on death row, are there any massive lunatics that stand out to you who are in there? Yeah, so... The worst one was Jay Schrader. He abducted a girl in Canada and butchered her. Then he grounded her up into meatballs and he fed her to her parents during the search. He boasted about that a lot, man. I went out of my way to drive him crazy. How? I humiliated him in a game of chess and he tried to have me murdered for it. But a man, I delighted in tormenting him. He was a genius. Kept telling everyone how clever and smart he was, right? So I knew that I could get under his skin. So I challenged him to a game of chess, and I told him I would pay him a carton of cigarettes against a single pack of cigarettes if he could beat me. Being a genius that he was, he took the challenge. I made him so angry towards the end by taunting him as I was finishing the win. He threw his board out the window and said that anybody on the block that killed me, he'd pay him a thousand dollars. 
He was so angry. God got Jay Schrader back by giving him stomach cancer. The nurses came to his cell regularly. Mr. Schrader, Mr. Schrader, oh, and you hear him crying. Oh, I can't take the pain. Oh, where's my morphine? I need pain medication. They said, no, Mr. Schrader, we just want you to know that God got you back for killing that girl and feeding her to her parents by giving you this uh, stomach cancer. And we want you to know you fucking deserve to die miserably, you piece of shit. And that was women saying it to him, man. Yeah. Did you ever have the fear walking around the block when you were out for an hour? Fear what? Fear of other prisoners attacking you. Uh, I got attacked regularly. I had one guy stab me in the stomach so deep I had to headbutt him to get him off me. Now, I wasn't afraid of no one, but I was wary of them. You get it? Never trust anybody with your life. So we weren't out walking around the block. They took us out of our cell, and they put us in a 10-foot-wide, 20-foot cage for our exercise. We never got trusted. Chained up. So every day, yeah, especially after the escape, I used to have to exercise with 50,000 volt electricity strapped to my belly with these two things right over my kidneys so that if I did anything wrong, they could zap me. And the guards used to play catch with the remote control, play games with me mentally. They were really serious about messing with my head. You know, I kept going on. It's funny. It wasn't until 2002 when I was dearly sick and they blinded me in my cell with the medications for this hepatitis C. I decided enough was enough and I asked to dismiss my lawyers and be executed. I had already watched the real Buffalo Bill be executed. I figured, fuck it, I'm going out too. I didn't want the nurses torment me. There was a guy in the cell right underneath me named Dale. Dale had the same hepatitis as me, but his treatments didn't work. He laid there in his bed in agony being tormented by the staff because he was convicted of a rape and war a murder just like me. I thought, man, you ain't doing that to me. But I ain't got the guts to kill myself, so I'm going to make you put me to death. That's how I thought. And instead, the federal court ordered the DNA testing. In February of 2003, the DNA results from the killer's gloves that were hidden at my trial came back with DNA from the killer, DNA from Mrs. Craig, and DNA from a possible second female victim. I was so upset with that last part. I thought, man, you let this guy go get away with murder maybe more than once. So then they had a deal set up that the remaining DNA testing would use up any remaining test material and would I go along with it? And I said, yes, of course. So in July of 2003, they got the DNA uh, evidence back and the spermatozoa found in the victim's underwear matched the killer's gloves. 
And then there was a second man's DNA from sperm found in her underwear and it had nothing to do with me. The day that it all happened, my mother couldn't even celebrate because when I called her about this, my brother was having an epileptic seizure at her feet and she was trying to keep something in his mouth to keep him from choking to death on his tongue and she couldn't even celebrate with me. I realized right then what I had done to my family with my stupid behavior as a child and it broke me. How many years were you in prison where you weren't allowed to be touched or you weren't allowed to touch anyone? The last time I had someone touch me was in, Mar in November of 1989 when I had a contact visit with my mom then I would have to wait until December of 2003, some almost 15 years later, to be touched by another human being. So for 15 years, I never had a human hand touch me. How do you get through each day sitting in a cell knowing that you're going to be executed and knowing that you're going to lose your life. I did some of my best living during that time. When I knew that there was no hope for me to get out of there and all I could work towards was being able to speak for myself when they did execute me, I was okay. I lived brilliantly and alive and I achieved a great education six years of study of psychology alone from university, studying all of the world's classics. I was so in love with language. My whole world revolved around words. I was actually happy, and it didn't matter to me that they were going to put me to death because I took all the photographs off my wall except for a photograph of myself, and I did. I taught myself how to speak beautifully to myself. So I was ready. When they put me down, I was ready. I want to go back to finding out how you know when you're going to be executed. Is there a date put on you? Only if you give up your appeals or you lose all your appeals. The state of Pennsylvania was not successful in killing a single person from 1963 until 1996, when the very first man in Pennsylvania asked to be executed, which was a neighbor of mine and a good friend of mine named Keith Zettelmeyer. Keith had killed his childhood best friend after they got caught doing burglaries together and his friend turned state's evidence against Keith. But even the victim's mother didn't want Keith put to death, but Keith was so besought was suffering. He couldn't take it no more. They threw him down a metal stair a staircase and broke his hip, and he was in agony. So he asked to be executed, and that's when the real Buffalo Bill, Gary Heidnick, saw his chance for glory, and he wanted to be executed next. And this is the sick bastard that abducted six black women and put them in a pit under his house. Yeah, 
And then he electrocuted one of them in front of all the others, chopped her up and fed her to the survivors, man, in dog food. He was making some kind of superior race with his genes, he was saying. Gary was crazy. His name was Gary Heidnick, and he was one of the sickest people I ever met in my life. He delighted in tormenting us by telling us all about why he killed these women or tortured them. Would he just be talking in the prison out loud in the evening trying to get into people's heads? So it was when the power got knocked out on this unit in Pittsburgh Penitentiary that had a forced air circulation system. So as soon as anything like the power got knocked out because of some flooding and they had to shut everything down, you could hear a pin drop. He knew it was his time. He would come to his cell door and start performing this sick ritual of pretending to be the women in the pit first, doing their voices in falsetto, then coming back and doing his voice and then doing an overtop voice explaining to us all about his master plan. Jesus. If you kicked on your door, if you flushed your toilet trying to drown him out, the guards came in and whooped your ass or sprayed you in the face with tear gas because they actually delighted in you suffering to Gary's little routine. Could any of you get a Gary? Lots of people beat on him. They did. He didn't care. He didn't care. He didn't care. He actually thought if you beat him, you validated what he was. Black inmates would whoop his ass. White inmates whooped his ass. It didn't matter to Gary. Gary delighted in who he was. And if you beat Gary up, you were just an asshole. You didn't understand him. Get it? Mm. Once again, God got him back too. At the uh, 21st hour or the 23rd hour, whatever you want to call it, the lawyers representing Gary did this hideous thing. They went through his records and they found out that prior to him going to death row, he had abducted a, a handicapped black woman, kept her in a cage and impregnated her. That child from that attack was now a 22-year-old girl. She came with the help of these lawyers. I couldn't believe they did this to her. They told her who her real father was then they asked her to come forward and save his life. Gary went to the death chamber not knowing any of this until she showed up at the 23rd hour and said, Daddy, Daddy, it's me. Please love me and don't be mean like this and all this. And it just broke him and drove him crazy, didn't it? He lost all of his will to scream out all of that racist bullshit. Mm. Did you ever go down to the death chamber to have a look? Did they ever take you down to say, this I is would, where you're going to get executed? No, that was in a new, another prison. The only time I was right next to the death chamber was when I was in Florida. When I turned myself in Florida, they put me right above Yellow Mama. And they had to test that thing every Wednesday because they were actually executing people. So I was in as far as maybe 50 yards from the real electric chair in Florida. And you can hear it? Oh, yeah. They got to shut all the other exterior power down. They can't afford any power loss. So they shut down the power on the unit every Wednesday morning 
and started this big generator outside in the courtyard. It was a diesel generator. And we'd get going. Then you'd hear, and they had something in the chair they were electrocuting. I don't know what it was, whether a rabbit or whatever, but they used to test it out every Wednesday and put something to death. And you smell the smoke afterwards. So, How many prisons did you get moved around to over those 22 years? Eight or nine. Can you name them? Yeah, so I landed at Graterford Prison that had a two, uh, a two mile wall, a two mile circular wall that was 40 feet high until I was sent to Huntington Prison. When I was sent to Huntington Prison, I spent 12 years there until I went to Pittsburgh Penitentiary where I would be put through hell for three years in a psychological experiment and then I sent, got sent to Greene County Supermax. Before that, I was held in Florida, and I was held in various county jails in Pennsylvania as well. So in all in total, about nine different prisons. And you say Supermax. What's Supermax compared to? Level five. Give me an example of what that feels like, looks like. Nobody touches you. Two guards with rubber gloves get you to turn around after you strip inside your cell, stick your hands out through the pie hole, have your hands cuffed. They then put a, a tether on that, and then they hold onto the tether while your door is open. They reach around your door with the tether, maneuver you out, and then they escort you like that. No one's allowed to touch you. You're in solitary confinement, and you're being treated as if you're the most dangerous person in the system. You want to know what the worst ones were when I went to court? Mm. I'm fighting for DNA, and in order to make it from my cell to a courtroom, I had to get up at 4.30 a.m., be strip-searched, given a, a meal that consisted of two pieces of bread and some bologna and cheese with an apple and a carton of juice. Then I would sit there until 6.30, and all the other prisoners were dressed out and be ready to put on a 40-foot bus. Then I would be the last prisoner put on the bus, but before they put me on the bus, they put leg irons on my legs, they put a waist chain around my waist and attached it to my legs down at my ankles, and then they put 50,000 volts of electricity on me, then they put handcuffs on me and a black box over the handcuffs, and they put me in a metal box on the bus so I would be separated from every other prisoners with an officer sitting behind me with a shotgun and a remote control. Then I would have to spend 15 hours in that box going one way to court. 15 hours with my hands immobilized like this so I can't move with the belt on me and my legs together and I would just be sitting my head against a wall like this for 15 agonizing hours just to go to a DNA hearing. And you were innocent. And I was innocent. I learned a lot about compassion. That word is deeply important to me. 
having the capacity to feel compassion for your attackers saved my sanity. If you're so horrible as a person that you need to torture me, I need to feel sorry for you, not anger. If you're that ruined as a human being, you got to come to my cell while at work, and instead of being professional, you trick me into telling me my mom's here. You get me to dress and get out of my cell, and then you walk a few yards with me and say, oh, we're just playing around, your mom's not here, and then you put me back in a cell. I can't hate you. you got to be so messed up. There's no point of hating you. So the more they tortured me, the more I found out about love and kindness. They used to pray all kind of horrible games on me. I had one officer determined to have all these other killers take me out. He hated me and hated me. He would wait for me to get in the shower and he'd let a guy out that had a razor blade to attack me. He would let out guys that had just beaten people to pulps, try and get me from behind. Everywhere along the way, I just kept getting lucky. I'm proud of myself for one thing. No matter how much torture I went through, I held on to my humanity and I started helping other guys that were suffering. In fact, when I got out of prison, I walked up to the microphones that were assembled by the press and I asked someone to please come help the two men behind me that were innocent in the prison I was standing in front of. And then I walked away. I didn't cry. I didn't talk about what was done to me. I didn't have anything to say about me. I decided to keep my word and go back from my friends and get them off a of death row. When was it in those 22 years when you were told you can go? It was at the very end after the DNA testing came back. But they botched my release. On January 16th, 2004, a van with me in it, was driven across the compound known as Green County Supermax. I had just finished telling all of the staff goodbye and good luck, shook their hands like a man. Wasn't bitter, wasn't angry. I got into the van with no handcuffs, sitting next to a little cardboard box that had my last little bit of legal work or letters that I had received from friends. And then we drove across the compound, and the two officers were asking me things like, so what's your first meal going to be like? Are you worried about having a girl again and all this? I never knew what was coming. We got to the barrier. They opened it up. I was at the last gate now. As we got to the last gate, the officers standing there, instead of opening the gate and letting me through, took a telephone off its receiver and handed it to the driver. The driver took the phone into the van, was standing, yes, sir. What? Oh, hell no. No, I will not. 
Yes, sir. Oh, this is bullshit. So he looked at his partner. He said, guess what? They're fucking this kid. He ain't getting out. They botched my release, Dodge. The officer was so upset, he refused to turn the van around. He literally backed it up for where he drove it across the compound and then brought me back to where the administrators were standing. And they told me that the paperwork in the state of Florida was not complete, that a lawyer was on an airplane right then. Don't freak out. It's not us playing a game with you. We're so sorry we told you you could go home when you can't go home. We hope that this now gets worked out. What can we do for you? I said, how long? He said, how long what? I said, how long are you going to leave my mother and father stand over in the snow waiting for me? They just saw me pull up in the van. How long are you going to let my parents do this? They said, oh, no, we sent somebody out there to tell them that it's not us, that they're going to go get something to eat. So he said, what can we do for you? I said, no matter what you do, don't you dare put me back in a cell. I just spent 8,057 days in a cell. Don't you dare put me back in the prison cell. I don't care where you have to put me. Don't put me in a cell. So they looked at each other like this was the craziest thing they'd ever been asked. They said, okay. So they put me in a big property room, and they made a sergeant stand there with me. He stood guard over me more than anything. And he asked me all kind of things. Did I believe in God? Did I believe in love? And the strangest one at all. He said, how do you feel about yourself? And I didn't know how to answer him. I didn't know who I was. Mm. Do you know the worst part was? I finally got to see myself that night. I drove back to my parents' house four and a half hours away watching my parents in the back seat hold their hands together to each other. And I got interviewed in front of my house. Then I sat and I watched the evening news and I found out I was an old man by looking at myself on television. In my head, I was a 20-year-old kid. I didn't have a mirror in my cell, Dodge. I didn't see myself develop. I didn't see pictures of myself. I didn't know what I looked like. But there was some old man with my voice standing in front of my parents' house talking. And it totally fucking freaked me out. I was like, oh my God, I'm a middle-aged man. And then everybody got drunk and started fighting and arguing. And I felt so ashamed that my mom had to witness me get out of prison and come home to the same bullshit dysfunction of my family. She was the one a day or two later that sat me down and asked me to do her a favor. She said, Nikki, I need you to do me a favor. Please be polite. Be a respectful man. I want you to say yes, sir, and no, sir, and thank you, ma'am, and thank you, sir, so that people know that no matter what was done to us as a family, we have respect. And that's what made me start all this. So I met a woman from England when I came here to speak to a combined session of the lower house of parliament. I was only 10 months out of jail 
and I had this beautiful education driving this effort. And then my parents found out that she had been with a black man, so they didn't want me to come home for Christmas and share my first Christmas with them. So on my very first Christmas home, my parents and my whole family left me sitting in my parents' basement because they didn't want nothing to do with me because the woman I had fallen in love with had previously been but a black man. Did you get any compensation when you come out of prison? Unfortunately, <clears throat> the woman I came to England with was hard-handed and heavy-hearted. She did a lot of cruel things to me. And after our daughter was born, I had to get away from her. She would sucker punch me if I walked by with the baby in my arms knowing I couldn't defend myself or stuff like that. So I was living in a tent in Frogmore, right outside of Elstree or uh, England. And I negotiated with Pennsylvania to settle for a third of what I was asking for so I could get out of the tent. So, so you're going to get compensation. You flew to England, living in a tent, and then you were going back to them and saying, just give me a third of the money so we can settle it now, So I want the money. I need the money. Because How much were they talking? $25 million or more initially, and I only took four. Then a lawyer took a third of that. So you I took $4 million. You got compensation of $4 million. Yeah, but it only turned out to 700,000 pounds after everybody else got their share. So I walked in the house. I gave Karen her, her half, and I moved up to Stevenage. That was the first time I was ever free in my life. My wife was really bitter about me leaving her. She sabotaged my book deal. She ruined my business, destroyed my life. She's so upset that I left her. She won't leave me alone to this day. I haven't seen my daughter for 10 years. The only reason I know she's alive is because a mutual friend of ours named Sean went to her school to speak and my daughter stood up and said, I'm actually Nick Yaris's daughter. I didn't know if she was alive or anything over the last 10 years. So two days ago was her birthday and me and Sean sat down and did a podcast. You can't make all this up. So I hope that I get a chance to reunite with my daughter. Meanwhile, I'm going to go around the world teaching people about neuroplasticity healing. And I have a gift to keep people from killing themselves. If after everything I told you, you wouldn't expect me to be happy, would you? No. I'm the happiest, go-lucky, sweet-hearted person you can meet. Yeah. You want to know why? Life is that precious. I don't want to squander it. Yeah. My favorite saying is, never let anyone steal your kindness because it is what makes you uniquely who you are. Mm. I refuse to let anyone steal my kindness. How are you going to go and see your daughter? I'm not. Oh, I'll wow. wait for her to find me. This way here. How old is she today? 17 now. So she'll be able to find you on social media. She's brilliant, bright, young student. 
and I know she doesn't want to incur the wrath of her mother who's very hard-handed. So she hasn't reached out to me. So I try and keep myself alive, hoping to see my little girl. I won't kill myself, Laura. I won't be mean. I'll never do drugs. I'll give my life to a purpose, knowing that you're out there. Your name is Laura Rebecca Yaris. Your middle name, Rebecca, is because your grandmother died basically right in front of me in the hospital. Betty was her name, and she was in the hospital not doing well. And her and I had a beautiful conversation about she had never really gotten sick in her life. And I asked her why. Why did you think that was, Betty? And she said, well, I never really complained. So I guess I just never got sick because I didn't complain. And then I swear before you, she closed her eyes and she died right then and there in front of me. So I asked that your middle name be Rebecca out of respect for your grandmother, honey. I love you. In your first six months of your life, I had you swimming so well that when I took you to Tenerife, all these English lads fell in love with you and they pretended to be sharks in the swimming pool around you and you swam away from all of them, delightfully so. I took you to baby rhyme time. I taught you night from day. I taught you how to eat. I was a brilliant father. I'm sorry that you got taken from my life, but I live by this code that no matter what, as long as I'm a good person inside and I continue to try and be a nice man, you'll come back to my life and I'll be okay. Have you had a look for your daughter on online on social media? No. I'm not going to do that to her because I already know she's not allowed to be on social media. And it must have taken an enormous amount of courage for my little girl to stand up in class and say, I am the child of Nick Yaris. He's my father. And I know she's probably been punished for doing that. I can't help it. But if my little girl has that much courage, I need to man up. I need to go ahead and let her finish whatever she has to do. Don't go and bother her. Let her come to me. That will happen. That's what I believe. What are your movements today, Nick? What are your movements moving forward? I want to go and bring Philly cheesesteaks to this country. I make amazing food. I'm a well-trained cook. So if I can get housing and I can get a job and get set up, brilliant. I'd love to go back to the theater and do a one-man stage play and do all this amazing work. But my passion, my real passion, is trying to help young people not kill themselves. I have a gift of getting through to people who are broken. I have a gift to get them to not die. That's the greatest blessing of my life because I have a purpose from everything that was done to me. My hope going forward is that I can reconnect with the stage and be brilliantly alive like I used to be and help people all over this country get away from one of the worst things right now that's tearing this country apart.
which is mental health issues. Nick, this is some story, and I'm never normally lost for words. This is unbelievably powerful, and I can feel your kindness and the strength. It's real. It's real. I know. Yeah. I believe in all this so much, Dodge. I'm going to be okay, brother. Yeah. I'm living with CTE, which is chronic mm. traumatic encephalitis of the brain. All last year, I had nine brain scans done. I know I'm fighting a monster, a beast. I have to wake up sometimes and tell myself, it's okay. I'm not really angry to get over it. But the more I'm polite and kind, my dreams aren't torturing me and I'm okay. Maybe I gave myself a way to handle this I never knew I would have to prepare for. Mm. So for you, brother, I promise you, I'll always try and be decent and kind. I don't want to do this podcast and let you down. I, I promise you, I won't give up on this. I don't want you to ever have to think about taking down a podcast because I turned out not to be who I was or I gave in and I became mean and angry. Mm. I, I won't let you down, Dodge. Mm. I know that. Wow, Nick. <laughs> This is an outrageously unbelievable episode. It really I love is. you for letting me speak. Yeah. I'm, I, I'm honoured that I can give you this platform to speak. And most importantly out of that whole story, it's your daughter. I know. That's the one, mate. And uh, I, that, you've been to hell and back. Literally, I couldn't even think of anything worse than what you've been through and being innocent. And anyone listening out there, where can they find you to reach out on I socials? I have an Instagram profile. I just had a brand new website built for me by a, a young lad here in England. So yeah, I'm sure if you have Instagram, you can find me. And the good thing is I always respond. Mm. I try and be polite to everyone and respond. And I'll never get an official uh, Instagram account because I, I'm just a normal person. Mm. Yeah. Nick, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast and I really appreciate you making the effort coming down here. Dodge, I am so grateful to you for letting me have a chance to actually pay the man that loaned me a car on tick, mm. come down here and speak and I actually feel so alive right now because I can tell when someone cares I don't like to talk to someone who's just making money or they don't care. Mm. Thank you for loving me enough to care today. Mm. Yeah? It's a pleasure. No, that means something to me, brother. Yeah. You have beautiful people around you. And I know when the world finally learns about your story, they're going to find out something beautiful. Mm. And I hope that that day is a great day for you to feel free. That's what I feel today. Yeah. Freedom. Happy days. Happy days, brother. Happy days. Nick, you're a gentleman and I really appreciate everything. Some I story. Know. I know. Good luck to you and your you daughter. Thank Good you. Good man. Good man.